It's fall in northern Idaho and northwest Montana. Every time the seasons change from summer to fall, I think of one of my favorite essays, Nature by Ralph Waldo Emerson. His description of autumn opens up a philosophical treatise on natural beauty. He encourages us to take a step back, leave the quote, politics and personalities of the world and lose ourselves in nature. I'll be reading a few of my favorite sections on this episode of the podcast. Welcome to Fall. I'm Henry Jordan, and this is your Wild Place. Nature by Ralph Waldo Emerson There are days which occur in this climate, at almost any season of the year, wherein the world reaches its perfection, when the air, the heavenly bodies, and the earth make a harmony, as if nature would indulge her offspring, when, in these bleak upper sides of the planet, nothing is to desire that we have heard of the happiest latitudes and we bask in the shining hours of Florida and Cuba, when everything that his life gives sign of satisfaction and the cattle that lie on the ground seem to have great and tranquil thoughts. These halcyons may be looked for with a little more assurance in that pure October weather, which we distinguish by the name of the Indian summer. The day, immeasurably long, sleeps over the broad hills and warm wide fields, To have lived through all its sunny hours seems longevity enough. The solitary places do not seem quite lonely. At the gates of the forest, the surprised man of the world is forced to leave his city estimates of great and small, wise and foolish. The knapsack of custom falls off his back with the first step he makes into these precincts. Here is sanctity which shames our religions and reality which discredits our heroes. Here we find nature to be the circumstance which dwarfs every other circumstance, and judges like a god all men that come to her. We have crept out of our close and crowded houses into the night and morning, and we see what majestic beauties daily wrap us in their bosom. How willingly we would escape the barriers which render them comparatively impotent, escape the sophistication and second thought, and suffer nature to entrance us. The tempered light of the woods is like a perpetual morning, and is stimulating and heroic. The anciently reported spells of these places creep on us. The stems of pines, hemlocks, and oaks almost gleam like an iron on the excited eye. The incommunicable trees begin to persuade us to live with them, and quit our life of solemn trifles. Here no history or church or state is interpolated on the divine sky and the immortal year. How easily we might walk onward into the opening landscape, absorbed by new pictures and by thoughts fast succeeding each other, until by degrees the recollection of home was crowded out of the mind, all memory obliterated by the tyranny of the present and we were led in triumph by nature. These enchantments are medicinal. They sober and heal us. These are plain pleasures, kindly native to us. 
We come to our own and make friends with matter, which the ambitious chatter of the schools would persuade us to despise. We never can part with it. The mind loves its old home. As water to our thirst, so is the rock, the ground to our eyes and hands and feet. It is firm water. It is cold flame. What health, what affinity. Ever an old friend, ever like a dear friend and brother when we chat affectedly with strangers, comes in his honest face and takes a grave liberty with us and shames us out of our nonsense. Cities give not the human senses room enough. We go out daily and nightly to feed the eyes on the horizon and require so much scope, just as we need water for our bath. There are all degrees of natural influence, from these quarantine powers of nature, up to her dearest and gravest ministrations to the imagination and the soul. There is the bucket of cold water from the spring, the wood fire to which the chilled traveler rushes for safety. And there is the sublime moral of autumn and of noon. We nestle in nature and draw our living as parasites from her roots and grains. And we receive glances from the heavenly bodies, which call us to solitude and foretell the remotest future. The blue zenith is the point in which romance and reality meet. I think if we should be wrapped away into all that we dream of heaven and should converse with Gabriel and Uriel, the upper sky would be all that would remain of our furniture. The moral sensibility which makes Edens and Tempes so easily may not always be found, but the material landscape is never far off. We can find these enchantments without visiting the Como Lake or the Madeira Islands. We exaggerate the praises of local scenery. In every landscape, the point of astonishment is the meeting of the sky and the earth. And that is seen from the first hillock as well as from the top of the Alleghenies. The stars at night stoop down over the brownest, homeliest common with all the virtual magnificence which they shed on the Campania or on the marble deserts of Egypt. The uprolled clouds and the colors of morning and evening will transfigure maples and alders. The difference between landscape and landscape is small, but there is great difference in the beholders. There is nothing so wonderful in any particular landscape as the necessity of being beautiful under which every landscape lies. Nature cannot be surprised and undress. Beauty breaks in everywhere. Motion or change in identity or rest are the first and second secrets of nature. Motion and rest. The whole code of her laws may be written on the thumbnail or the signet of a ring. The whirling bubble on the surface of a brook admits us to the secret of the mechanics of the sky. Every shell on the beach is a key to it. A little water made to rotate in a cup explains the formation of the simpler shells. The addition of matter from year to year arrives at last at the most complex forms. And yet so poor is nature with all her craft that from the beginning to the end of the universe she has but one stuff, but one stuff with its two ends to serve up all her dreamlike variety. Compound it how she will, star, sand, fire, water, tree, man, it is still one stuff 
and betrays the same properties. Nature is always consistent, though she feigns to contravene her own laws. She keeps her laws and seems to transcend them. She arms and equips an animal to find its place in living in the earth, and at the same time she arms and equips another animal to destroy it. Space exists to divide creatures, but by clothing the sides of a bird with a few feathers she gives him a petty omnipresence. The direction is forever onward, but the artist still goes back for materials and begins again with the first elements on the most advanced stage. Otherwise, all goes to ruin. If we look at her work, we seem to catch a glance of a system in transition. Plants are the young of the world, vessels of health and vigor, but they grope ever upward towards consciousness. The trees are imperfect men and seem to bemoan their imprisonment, rooted in the ground. The animal is the novice and probationer of a more advanced order. The men, though young, Having tasted the first drop from the cup of thought, are already dissipated. The maples and ferns are still uncorrupt. Yet no doubt, when they come to consciousness, they too will curse and swear. Flowers so strictly belong to youth that we adult men soon come to feel that their beautiful generations concern not us. We have had our day. Now let the children have theirs. The flowers jilt us and we are old bachelors with our ridiculous tenderness. Things are so strictly related that according to the skill of the eye, from any one object, the parts and properties of any other may be predicted. If we had eyes to see it, a bit of stone from the city wall would certify us of the necessity that man must exist, as readily as the city. That identity makes us all one, and reduces to nothing great intervals on our customary scale. We talk of deviations from natural life, as if artificial life were not also natural. The smoothest curled courtier in the boudoirs of a palace has an animal nature, rude and aboriginal as a white bear, omnipotent to its own ends, and is directly related, there amid essences and bilistow, to Himalayan mountain chains and the axis of the globe. If we consider how much we are natures, we need not be superstitious about towns as if that terrific or benefic force did not find us there also and fashion cities. Nature, who made the mason, made the house. We may easily hear too much of rural influences. The cool, disengaged air of natural objects makes them enviable to us chafed and irritable creatures with red faces, and we think we shall be as grand as they if we camp out and eat roots. But let us be men instead of woodchucks, and the oak and the elm shall gladly serve us, though we sit in chairs of ivory on carpets of silk. This guiding identity runs through all the surprises and contrasts of the piece, and characterizes every law. Man carries the world in his head, the whole astronomy and chemistry is suspended in a thought. Because the history of nature is characterized in his brain, therefore is he the prophet and discoverer of her secrets. Every known fact in natural science was divined by the presentiment of somebody before it was actually verified. A man does not tie his shoe 
without recognizing laws which bind the farthest region of nature. Moon, plant, gas, crystal, are concrete geometry and numbers. Common sense knows its own and recognizes the facts at first sight in chemical experiment. The common sense of Franklin, Dalton, Davy, and Black is the same common sense which made the arrangements which now it discovers. If the identity expressed organized rest, the counteraction runs also into organization. The astronomers said, give us matter and a little motion and we will construct the universe. It is not enough that we should have matter. We must also have a single impulse, one shove to launch the mass and generate the harmony of the centrifugal and centripetal forces. Once heave the ball from the hand and we can show how all this mighty order grew. A very unreasonable postulate, said the metaphysicians, and a plain begging of the question. Could you not prevail to know the genesis of projection as well as the continuation of it? Nature, meanwhile, had not waited for the discussion, but, right or wrong, bestowed the impulse and the balls rolled. It was no great affair, a mere push. But the astronomers were right in making much of it, for there is no end to the consequences of the act. That famous aboriginal push propagates itself through all the balls of the system, and through every atom of every ball, through all the races of creatures, and through the history and performances of every individual. Exaggeration is in the course of things. Nature sends no creature, no man, into the world without adding a small excess of his proper quality. Given the planet, it is still necessary to add the impulse. So to every creature, nature added a little violence of direction in its proper path, a shove to put it on its way, in every instance a slight generosity, a drop too much. Without electricity, the air would rot, and without this violence of direction which men and women have, without a spice of bigot and fanatic, no excitement, no efficiency. We aim above the mark to hit the mark. Every act hath some falsehood of exaggeration in it. And when now and then comes along some sad, sharp-eyed man who sees how paltry a game is played and refuses to play but blabs the secret, how then? Is the bird flown? Oh no, the wary nature sends a new troop of fairer forms, of lordlier youths, with a little more excess of direction to hold them fast to their several aims makes them a little wrong-headed in that direction in which they are rightest. And on goes the game again with new world for a generation or two more. The child with his sweet pranks, the fool of his senses, commanded by every sight and sound, without any power to compare and rank his senses, abandoned to a whistle or a painted chip, to a lead dragon or a gingerbread dog, individualizing everything, generalizing nothing, Delighted with every new thing, lies down at night, overpowered by the fatigue which this day of continual pretty madness has incurred. But nature has answered her purpose with the curly, dimpled lunatic. She has tasked every faculty, the symmetrical growth of the bodily frame by all these attitudes and exertions, an end of the first importance, which could not be trusted to any care less perfect than her own. This glitter, 
This opaline luster plays around the top of every toy to his eye to ensure his fidelity, and he is deceived to his good. We are made alive and kept alive by the same arts. Let the Stoics say what they please. We do not eat for the good of living, but because the meat is savory and the appetite is keen. The vegetable life does not content itself with casting from the flower or the tree a single seed, but it fills the air and earth with a prodigality of seeds that if thousands perish, thousands may plant themselves, that hundreds may come up, that tens may live to maturity, that at least one may replace the parent. All things betray the same calculated profusion. The excess of fear with which the animal frame is hedged round, shrinking from cold, starting at sight of a snake or at a sudden noise, protects us through a multitude of groundless alarms. From someone, real danger at last. The lover seeks in marriage his private felicity and perfection with no prospective end. And nature hides in his happiness her own end, namely progeny or the perpetuity of the race. In like manner, there is throughout nature something mocking, something that leads us on and on, but arrives nowhere, keeps no faith with us. All promise outruns the performance. We live in a system of approximations. Every end is perspective of some other end, which is also temporary, a round and final success nowhere. We are encamped in nature, not domesticated. Hunger and thirst lead us on to eat and to drink, but bread and wine, mix and cook them how you will, leave us hungry and thirsty after the stomach is full. It is the same with all our arts and performances. Our music, our poetry, our language itself are not satisfactions, but suggestions. The hunger for wealth, which reduces the planet to a garden, fools the eager pursuer. What is the end sought? plainly to secure the ends of good sense and beauty from the intrusion of deformity or vulgarity of any kind. But what an opera's method! What a train of means to secure a little conversation! This palace of brick and stone, these servants, this kitchen, these stables, horses and equipage, this bank stock and file of mortgages, trade to all the world, country house and cottage by the waterside, all for a little conversation, high, clear, and spiritual. Could it not be had as well by beggars on the highway? No, all these things came from successive efforts of these beggars to remove friction from the wheels of life and give opportunity. Conversation, character were the avowed ends. Wealth was good as it appeased the animal cravings, cured the smoky chimney, silenced the creaking door, brought friends together in a warm and quiet room, and kept the children and the dinner table in a different apartment. Thought, virtue, beauty were the ends, but it was known that men of thought and virtue sometimes had the headache, or wet feet, or could lose good time whilst the room was getting warm in winter days. Unluckily, in the exertions necessary to remove these inconveniences, the main attention has been diverted to this object, the old aims have been lost sight of, and to remove friction has come to be the end. That is the ridicule of rich men. In Boston, London, Vienna, 
And now the governments generally of the world are cities and governments of the rich. And the masses are not men, but poor men. That is, men who would be rich. This is the ridicule of the class, that they arrive with pains and sweat and fury nowhere. When all is done, it is for nothing. They are like one who has interrupted the conversation of a company to make his speech, and now has forgotten what he went to say. The appearance strikes the eye everywhere of an aimless society, of aimless nations. Were the ends of nature so great and cogent as to exact this immense sacrifice of men? Quite analogous to the deceits in life, there is, as might be expected, a similar effect on the eye from the face of eternal nature. There is in woods and waters a certain enticement and flattery. Together with the failure to yield present satisfaction, this disappointment is felt in every landscape. I have seen the softness and beauty of the summer clouds floating feathery overhead, enjoying, as it seemed, their height and privilege of motion, whilst yet they appeared not so much the drapery of this place and hour as forelooking to some pavilions and gardens of festivity beyond. It is an odd jealousy, but the poet finds himself not near enough to his object. The pine tree, the river, the bank of flowers before him does not seem to be nature. Nature is still elsewhere. This, or this, is but outskirt and far-off reflection, an echo of the triumph that has passed by and is now at its glancing splendor and heyday. Perchance in the neighboring fields, or if you stand in the field, then in the adjacent woods, the present object shall give you this sense of stillness that follows a pageant which has gone by. What splendid distance, what recesses of ineffable pomp and loveliness in the sunset. But who can go where they are, or lay his hand or plant his foot thereon? Off they fall from the round world forever and ever. It is the same among men and women as among the silent trees, always a referred existence, an absence, never a presence and a satisfaction. Is it that beauty can never be grasped? In persons and in landscapes is equally inaccessible? The accepted and betrothed lover has lost the wildest charm of his maiden in her acceptance of him. She was heaven whilst he pursued her, as a star. She cannot be heaven if she stoops to such a one as he. What shall we say of this omnipresent appearance of that first projectile impulse, of this flattery and balking of so many well-meaning creatures? Must we not suppose somewhere in the universe a slight treachery and derision? Are we not engaged to a serious resentment of this use that is made of us? Are we tickled trout and fools of nature? One look at the face of heaven and earth lays all petulance at rest and soothes us to wiser convictions. To the intelligent, nature converts itself into a vast promise and will not be rashly explained. Her secret is untold. Many and many an Oedipus arrives. He has the whole mystery teeming in his brain. Alas! The same sorcery has spoiled his skill. No syllable can he shape on his lips. 
Her mighty orbit vaults like the fresh rainbow into the deep. But no archangel's wing was yet strong enough to follow it and report of the return of the curve. But it also appears that our actions are seconded and disposed to greater conclusions than we design. We are escorted on every hand through life by spiritual agents, and a beneficent purpose lies in wait for us. We cannot bandy words with nature or deal with her as we deal with persons. If we measure our individual forces against hers, we may easily feel as if we are the sport of an inseparable destiny. But if, instead of identifying ourselves with the work, we feel that the soul of the workman streams through us, we shall find the peace of the morning dwelling first in our hearts and the fathomless powers of gravity and chemistry, and over them of life, pre-existing with us in their highest form. The uneasiness which the thought of our helplessness and the chain of causes occasions us results from looking too much at one condition of nature, namely motion. But the drag is never taken from the wheel. Wherever the impulse succeeds, the rest or identity insinuates its compensation. All over the wide fields of earth grows the prunella or self-heal. After every foolish day, we sleep off the fumes and furies of its hours. And though we are always engaged with particulars and often enslaved to them, we bring with us to every experiment the innate universal laws. These, while they exist in the mind as ideas, stand around us in nature forever embodied, a present sanity to expose and cure the insanity of men. Our servitude to particulars betrays into a hundred foolish expectations. We anticipate a new era from the invention of a locomotive or a balloon. The new engine brings with it the old checks. They say that by electromagnetism, your salad shall be grown from the seed whilst your fowl is roasting for dinner. It is a symbol of our modern aims and endeavors, of our condensation and acceleration of objects. But nothing is gained. Nature cannot be cheated. Man's life is but 70 salads long. Grow they swift or grow they slow. In these checks and impossibilities, however we find our advantage, not less than in the impulses. Let the victory fall where it will, we are on that side. And the knowledge that we traverse the whole scale of being, from the center to the poles of nature, and have some stake in every possibility, lends that sublime luster to death, which philosophy and religion have too outwardly and literally striven to express in the popular doctrine of the immortality of the soul. The reality is more excellent than the report. Here is no ruin, no discontinuity, no spent ball. The divine circulations never rest nor linger. Nature is the incarnation of a thought and turns to a thought again as ice becomes water and gas. The world is mind precipitated and the volatile essence is forever escaping again into the state of free thought. Hence, the virtue and pungency of the influence on the mind of natural objects, whether inorganic or organized. Man imprisoned, man crystallized, man vegetative, speaks to man impersonated. 
that power which does not respect quantity, which makes the whole and the particle its equal channel, delegates its smile to the morning, and distills its essence into every drop of rain. Every moment instructs, and every object for wisdom is infused into every form. It has been poured into us as blood. It convulsed us as pain. It slid into us as pleasure. It enveloped us in dull, melancholy days, or in days of cheerful labor. We did not guess its essence until after a long time. Thanks for listening to Your Wild Place, a production of Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information on the Friends, visit scotchmanpeaks.org. This episode of Your Wild Place was edited by Henry Jordan. Theme music was written and recorded by Ben Olson and Katie Archer. Never miss an episode by subscribing to Your Wild Place, wherever you listen to podcasts.